All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're ready for 1 Samuel chapter 27 tonight. Now, um, this, this section of Samuel 27 through 30 is kind of lumps together. I'd like to try to get through it all. I'm going to try, but, but we have, um, it kind of fits together. So it's the story, and basically I kind of set it up last week. For those of you that were here last week, we, we reach a season of the life of King David that's a real low point. Now, King David had um, been fleeing from Saul, and the story last week was a story that as I read it, where where David and Saul are, um, David has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he's sleeping, and the spear is by his head, and David takes his spear, and um, it almost sounded like a story we had just read. Like, is this a repeat? Did you forget and do the same story two weeks in a row? No, a week before that was where King Saul was in the cave and David cut off the hem of his garment, had an opportunity to kill him. The next week he finds him sleeping and at night him and his guy go in and take the spear from his head. And so um, David is running from Saul. And so David has made a choice, um, a very good choice, although a hard choice for us to understand, but David's made a choice that he's not going to kill Saul. He's not going to, um, and he's the rightful king of Israel. It's made it clear. Samuel's prophesied. Everybody knows it. But David has decided to let God take care of it and let God ordain it the way that he wanted it. And David said, I will not touch the anointed of the Lord. And, and so he's refused to um, kill Saul and he's just going to wait. But he's in a season of running from Saul. So he can't be, he's, he can't live in Israel, basically, or he's in Israel, he's in what's modern Israel, but he's outside of the, of the borders of his day in what was area that was controlled by the ancient enemies of Israel, which is who? Who's the ancient enemy of Israel? The Phila- Philistines, still to this day. The reason the Palestinians are, the reason why it's called Palestine was, it was, it was renamed Palestine because it was uh, just another jab at Israel, the ancient enemy of Israel, the the. Um, so they named that area Palestine after the Philistines, although the people that are there now are neither Philistines nor Palestinians. So in chapter 27, it says, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. So how does David sound there in verse 1, you guys? And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. How does he sound? He sounds whiny. He sounds discouraged. He's making um, a negative confession. You ever meet anybody in your life who says, oh, don't make negative confessions. They might come true. I tell you guys about my aunt all the time. My my favorite aunt, my Aunt Lydia. I should be careful saying favorite aunt. She's one of my favorite aunts. um, And I love her dearly. She was the one that, a large reason why I walk with the Lord today. And I was a prayer warrior and... And she, she was this type of Christian, and if you would tell her, oh, Aunt Lydia, I'm not feeling so good, she'd say, don't confess that in Jesus' name. Don't, don't say that. Like, there's this idea, and in some circles and in some places, that we don't want to make a negative confession, because if we make a negative confession, then it'll come true. But here we see David makes a negative confession, and I don't, again, I don't think that God wants us to, um, you know, be negative, be, be down, but at the same time, you know, what I love about King David, what I love about the people of the Bible is that there were real people that had real emotions, real flaws. We can relate to them. And David, in, throughout all of eternity, will be known as the man after God's own heart. So God thoroughly loves David. He, he has such a close relationship with God. And yet we see all of the inconsistencies. We see all the, the things, you know, in David's life that are not perfect. And that should bring you encouragement that you don't have to be perfect for God to love you, for God to use you, for God to to, want to be a part of your life. And here's David, who's just having a moment like we've all had. He's tired of running from King Saul. And so he just says, Saul's going to kill me. Now, does Saul go on and kill him? Is that what happens in his life? No. God's promise in his life comes true. And and how many of us, you know, these bills are going to kill me. Life is going to kill me. This situation is going to get the best of me. You know, or whatever it is in our lives, and, and yet that's, you know, Jesus said, don't worry about anything. How many of you guys do that one well? How many of you guys get an A plus on that one, right? Jesus said, but you know, when you think about it, like we all worry, right? Like it's part of life, right? But, but God encourages us that we don't want to be a people because this is what he says. When you think about the logic of what he says, it just makes so much sense. It kind of backs you in the corner because he says, by worrying, can you change anything? That's what Jesus said. 
The answer you have to answer honestly is no. I can worry, worry, worry about a problem, but my worrying about that problem never makes the problem any better. He said, can you, can you, can you gain an inch to your height by worrying? If you're worrying about being too short, it doesn't make you any taller. You know, and whatever you do, it doesn't, it doesn't change it. But here's what I heard a pastor say one time, and I loved it. He said, by the same energy that you use to worry and fret, if you'll use that same energy to pray, now you're, now, you're, now you're doing something that's valuable. Now your praying will absolutely change something. It'll change something in your life. It'll change your perspective. It'll change um, your direction. It'll, it'll, in, you know, it'll, it'll call God's blessing on, on whatever it is that you're going through. So David here, he's having a moment. He's discouraged. And we know David was a very emotional person, which, which was a strength and a weakness. Now David is, is such a, he's such an anomaly really of people, I think, because David was so multifaceted, right? David went from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, you think of, of culturally, you know, like the different types, you know, stereotypes. You think of like a, I don't know, like a John Cena or, a, you know, a man's man. He's all rough and tough and big and muscles on his muscles, you know. And then you think of like, a, I don't know who's on the other end. Somebody help me out. Who? Pee Wee Herman. That's a good example. I was kind of thinking like a Jimmy Fallon type, maybe like that or something. But, or, uh, but yeah, like, and, and yet David was all of those things. He was such a man's man. He was a warrior. He was a killer. He was a poet and a musician on the other hand. And, you know, was, 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 could bake, you know, chocolate chip cookies and he could cut your head off, you know. Like, he was just, he was, and he was a poet. He was a musician. He was a lover. He was a fighter. And he had, he had it all in spades. And one of the things about King David, because King David, as you know, right, he, he wrote so much of the Psalms. The Psalms in your Bible, many of them, about 70% of them were written by King David. So the, so the great psalmist, King David, who had God-given, of course, the, the most God-given ability to articulate feelings to words. You know, that's my prayer for myself all the time. And, you know, as a teacher of God's word, I want to be able to articulate ideas and feelings, you know, well, or, you know, just to articulate, period. And so King David is such an example of that. He has such an ability to articulate. So all that just to say that David is having in verse one, um, a rough day, he's making a negative confession. But again, when we make negative confessions, we want to be careful with them, but they doesn't mean they come true. And, you know, and so in verse 2 it says, so David arose and went over, and he, he makes it up in his mind that, that he should go and just, just, just hide in the Philistine land. So David arose and went over to, with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, and, who was Nabal's widow. And so it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. So David's plan, unfortunately, it did work. Saul stopped um, pursuing him. He wasn't going to pursue him down into Philistine country. Now, the thing that I pointed out last week that I want us to notice is from verse 27, chapter 27, all the way to chapter 30. Actually, let's, let's read on a little bit, and I'll tell you what it says, um, what I was going to say. There, there's no mention of David inquiring of the Lord. And look how long it lasts, for uh, 16 months. And David said to Achish, if now I have found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town and country that I may dwell there. For I, why should I, to your servant, dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag. That day, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time had dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. So for 16 months of this period of David's life, no mention of prayer, no mention, no Psalms written. You know, one of the things that's been fun as we go through 1 Samuel, and we'll do it again as we go through 2 Samuel, is we connect where David was in his life to where he wrote a certain Psalm, where he wrote um, at the end in chapter 30, we'll get to Psalm 42. And after he goes through the process of chapter 30 and this period of David's life ends, he writes Psalm 42 as the deer pants for water, so doth my soul pant for you, O Lord. And David is having this moment, this real spiritual moment. But in this 16 months, no mention of prayer, no mention of, of inquiring of the Lord, no direction from God. You know, so part of you says, you know, you're not really sure. You, can't, you don't know the will of God and, and where David, but it would seem that David had really no business. You know, and biblically we see that's consistent all through the Bible. 
You remember Ruth and her husband? Um, what was her husband's name? The one that died? Um, Milion and Ch- Chilion were the boys who died. And, um, but they, the same thing, they're in the land of Judah, there's no bread and, and they're in Bethlehem and they leave and they go to, they go to Canaanite country and then the, the father and the two kids die there. And it's just a bad idea. You know, I guess the only time where it's really prescribed by the, by the spirit is when Jesus flees down to Egypt for a season and God preserves him there, um, until he can come back. But, um, always a mistake when you leave the house of God and you end up in, in pagan land somewhere, you know, and there's spiritual application to that, that we don't want to get outside the will of God. We don't want to get outside the presence of God. We don't want to get angry with God, discouraged with God. And so, you know, stop inquiring, stop asking. Really, the strength of David's life was at every point of his life, and this is one of the great lessons that we can take away from studying the life of David, is that he was a man of prayer. And so he would pause and he would just say, God, should we go up and fight this battle? Should we do this? And in your life, in my life, at every, at every step, little and big decisions, a simple pause and, and, and asking God, talking to God, God, is this a good, good idea? Is this a decision? God, is this something I should do? God, is this a direction that you're leading? And, and then, you know, sometimes that becomes, when that becomes habit, it becomes a little bit easier part of the process. The harder part of the process then is when God tells you to do something you don't want to do. When God puts something on your heart that you, you know, you struggle with, with being obedient in, you know, just like a kid of any, you know, parent. Sometimes your parents tell you something you don't really like, but they have your best interest at hand, and God obviously knows. And so, but, but David here in this section is really struggling. He's depressed. You know, the other thing that, without getting into it, is David struggled with depression in his life. And again, you think of, you know, it's such a, like, a, a thing that we don't talk about in church much. We don't ever want to, you know give anybody the impression that, that it's okay to be depressed. But, you know, that, that's kind of changing, too, culturally, right? Now they're even singing songs on the radio, it's okay not to be okay type of thing, you know. And um, It's okay. You guys heard it? Yeah. So it's okay not to be okay. But David was not okay for a season, and he was really not okay in this season of his life. And then it says in verse 8, it says, And David and his men went up and, ra- and raided the Girgashites, the the Gerzites, the Amalekites, the termites, the flashlights, you guys know all these. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from old, as you go to Shur, and even as far as the land of Egypt. Now, whenever David attacked the land, now listen, this gets ugly. He never left, left man nor woman alive, but he took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. So, I mean... I don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how to justify this. Like, I, I don't even want to try. Like, th- this, is, this is war. This is ugly. This is, this is a, a primitive, you know, lifestyle that, that, that this man of God was leading. But he was, he was raiding, and they were killing everybody in these raids. They were killing women, children. They were leaving nobody alive. I mean, they were raiding against um, um, Canaanite countries that God had already pronounced judgment on, that God had told Saul to wipe all the Amalekites out already anyways, and Saul disobeyed the command. There shouldn't even be Amalekites in this verse because Saul should have already taken the, the, the Amalekites out, but he didn't. And so David is going. He's not going to Philistine countries. He's not going to um, Israeli and Judah, and, and, and he's not killing Hebrews. He's going to, to outside the, of the Philistine-controlled areas, these five cities, these five major cities that the Philistines controlled during the time of, of David and the ancient enemy of Israel, these five kings of the five Philistine cities. He's leaving there, and he's going to the surrounding Canaanite cities, the same groups of people that when Joshua crossed over the Jordan River and Joshua began his conquest through the book of Joshua and walked around the walls of Jericho, these Canaanite lands, these people, indigenous people that, that, that were there, that David is, is raiding against them. And, you know, for the simple fact that if word gets back to King Achish that, that he's not raiding in Israel, then he'll be found, you know, a liar. And so, so you know, it makes it even worse so, so that nobody gets word back, he's killing everybody in these raids. And it says in verse nine, whenever da- or in verse ten, and then Achish would say, "Where have you made raid today?" And David would say, "Against the southern area of Judah." Liar! He's lying through his teeth. Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of Jerahmeel, 
or against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did, and thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And so Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, and therefore he will be my servant forever. In chapter 28, it says, now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. And David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. So the the Philistines are gathering for war. And because King Achish is fooled and thinks that David is going and raiding in in southern Judah and killing Hebrews. And they're getting ready to war against Israel and Saul and Jonathan. He says, today you're going to fight with me. And, And David says, you know what I can do. I'm a man of war. You've seen it. You know, they, they hadn't forgot who David was, that David killed Goliath, that David was a man of war, that, that the, they would sing songs about King David, that Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands, and that David was an accomplished um, man of war who was, who was, you know, him and his 600 fighting men, you know, they were, they were 300 and all that, those guys, uh, whatever was his name from 300, uh, Leonidas and his men, you know, this is, this is David and his guys, like they're legitimate, like they're warriors, they're fighters, they're accomplished, they know what they're doing. And so he, you know, but, but where is David in his heart right now? Is David really committed to fighting with Achish against Israel? He's, he's not willing to go in and kill him, but is he, is he in that bad a shape or you never know in the story here because David agrees to go and fight with him. He shows up to the battle. He gets in line with all of the Philistines. And what's going to end up happening is the other Philistine lords are going to see him and say, hey, we can't trust that guy. And Achish is going, no, you can trust him. He's been with me for 16 months living um, in my southern border. And he's been killing Hebrews for 16 months. You can trust him. He's fine. And they're like, no, we don't trust him. This is the guy that killed Goliath. And he, he, he may, this may be a good opportunity for him to get back in with Saul and he may turn on us and with our heads make a peace treaty to Saul. We don't trust him. Tell him to go home. And then he's rejected by the world. But you don't really know in the story because it doesn't really say. I can only assume that, that David would, would have turned on the Philistines in the battle. Even though he arrayed with them and he went. I just can't personally see. And some people see it differently. I just can't personally see David joining with the Philistines as discouraged as he was, as, as, as bad as the things were going right there, and fighting with the Philistines against the Israelites. So I'm sure the, the other um, uh, Philistine kings make a good choice when they send David back. And then we get this kind of um, cutout in the story. Now we're going to pick up where we left off in verse number 2. We'll pick the rest of that story up in chapter 29. So David is getting ready to go to battle with, with Achish and the Philistines. And then we get this like parentheses in the middle here in verse 3 through the end of chapter 27. It goes back to a story of Saul. It's like meantime... And then when we get to 28, we'll get right back to where we left up our story. Now, this next section we're going to read, um, I think I'll read it, we'll go through it, and we'll talk about it a little bit. I think it's super important. It, it is a little confusing. I'll try to make the best kind of connections I can. You guys are going to have to make your own opinion on some of this stuff. Um, <clears throat> but it says in verse 3, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now, I'll just tell you, um, in Deuteronomy and other places in the Bible, God strictly forbid the use of spiritists, mediums, um, black magic, anything that was, that was tarot cards, palm reading, anything that was astrology, astronomy, um, you know, I don't know the difference. One of them is the study of the stars. And, and you know, the Bible is, is pretty simple when it comes to that stuff. You can study the stars. You can study the universe. The universe just doesn't tell your future. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have signs in it. It's, it is what it is, but it doesn't tell your future. And, and then when, you know, when we look to tarot cards and palm readers and spiritists and mediums and all of these things that are so popular, you know, we have these TV shows all over the, um, the networks right now that are these ghost hunters and, you know, people are all into this stuff. And if you talk to somebody who's had some kind of encounter or experience with, with this stuff, I mean, you could never for the life of you, convince them that it's not true or tell them anything different because their experience is so powerful. But biblically, there is a truth. 
And, and God forbid it. First of all, God forbid us and for you as Christians having anything to do with it. And just the, the skinny of it is, without spending all night on it, it's a slap in God's face for you to go outside of him to seek any kind of wisdom, to seek any kind of advice, to seek any kind of will. You know, I even get to the point which, you know, I don't mess with it because it's not cute. Like, even if it's cute, like, you, you get the horoscope in the morning. It used to be in our newspapers, and if you're newspaper people or you're, you know, you're really old like I am, then you, um, you know, we used to live in a day, right, when, when everything was newspapers. And in the newspaper, there would be a horoscope section. And it would just be kind of fun, right, to read what it said. And you didn't really take, pay too much mind, but it was kind of cute or whatever. But I didn't even mess with that. Because it's, it's here's the God of heaven who created you, who sent his son to die for you, who loves you. And, and here's what he wants. He wants nothing more than to be a good, good father to you and for you to come to him for advice. And, and he sent his son to die so that he could have relationship with you to tell you your future, to tell you and to encourage you and to, and to be a part of, of your life. And, and when you push him aside to go seek that same information from a, a, a demon, basically, because that's what it is, there's no gray areas, right? Your, your uncle doesn't come back. Your, your, your uncle who was a sailor jack doesn't die in an ocean and come back and haunt your bedroom. Okay, any, any of that experience that's real, that has some validity to it, it's demonic in nature and it's demons. We have two entities in the world. We have angels and demons. They're created exactly the same. They were all angels. And when Satan fell from a heaven, the Bible says with his tail, a third of them went with him. So that's why we call demons fallen angels. They're, they're the same, angels and demons. Anything that's supernatural is a demon. That's all it is. In the, in, in the book of Genesis, do you remember Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And then in order to show a sign, Moses throws his staff on the ground and his staff becomes a snake. Well, the Pharaoh trying to figure out what's going on, he calls his wise men, magicians, <coughs> diviners, and these guys, and they come in and they throw their staffs on the ground and they become snakes. And then Moses' snake eats their snake and he picks it back up and it becomes a staff. But... And then Moses comes and he says, let my people go. And Moses takes his staff and he touches the Nile River and the Nile River turns into blood. And then, and then um, Pharaoh goes and tells his diviners and his diviners take their staff. Now, I don't want to know why they want to make, just continue to make things worse for themselves, but they take theirs and they touch the Nile River and the Nile River turns to blood. And, and, the, and the Bible says that the, the magicians and the soothsayers and the diviners of Pharaoh's day of Egyptian magic were able to, to copy Moses' miracles um, up until about the third plague. And then their power run out and God's power continued all the way to the 10th. But the point is where the, the point is that the Egyptians had the ability to do some supernatural things. Where did that power come from? So the power is real. And that's why you could never convince somebody otherwise, which it is real. But you just have to understand that it's not, it's not a ghost. It's, not, it's, it's a demon. And it's a power of Satan. And it's evil. And, and the power is there. And God doesn't want us touching it. He doesn't want us any part of it, of our lives. He doesn't want us flirting with it. He doesn't want us messing with it. So again, the, you know, the Ouija board is evil. It's, it's, it's the same category. The Ouija board, any of those things... If, they, if it's a part of your life, it's a part of your family as a Christian, just get rid of it. It's a slap in God's face. Get rid of the horror, horoscopes, the astrology stuff, the, any of that stuff. Don't mess with it. God is very, very, very serious in, in Deuteronomy in warning his people to stay away from that stuff. So Saul actually has a good moment as the king of Israel, and he cleans and sweeps Israel from all of these things. He says, no more of this stuff in Israel. It's ungodly. God doesn't want it. Get it out of here. So he got rid of all the, all the tarot card readers, the palm readers, the spiritists, the mediums, the, um, you know, what, what is, is there's a show, which I've never, I don't watch any of them, but I've seen, I think, a commercial. Some woman, she's like in New York or something, like medium in Manhattan or something. You guys familiar with that? Anybody seen that? But you guys would never watch that trash, right? you just seen the commercial like me, right? But you haven't actually watched an episode, right? Because it's trash and it's nonsense. And it's just, it's not of God. It's just, it's like slapping God's face. So God says, um, so Saul put them all out. And then in verse four, it says, then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was somebody... 
He was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her, inquire of her. And his servant said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is the medium at Endor. Do you guys remember Michael Jackson's uh, thing from Disneyland? Anybody? Was the... Um, was it Space Tours? No, it was the Michael Jackson experience at Disneyland. I mean, I don't think it's there anymore. It was a long time. When I was a kid, I remember it. But he, but he was, what was that? Star Tours, right? Oh, Star Tours was at Endor. So you go to Endor um, to do this thing. But I don't know where they got that. But this is the, the, the witch at Endor. So it's a biblical idea. It's a biblical city, the witch at Endor. And so um, Saul is going to go to her. He's praying, he's trying to divine, or not divine, but he's trying to uh, seek God, and God's not speaking to him by the Urim. And you guys know what the Urim and the Thummim, the Urim and the Thummim? Another day I'll tell you about them. But it was a, it was a way, it was actually a godly way for a season that God allowed the priest to determine his will. It was the priest would carry in their pocket a black stone and a white stone, and, and they, would, they would oftentimes decide God's will based on God would speak through those things. He doesn't use them anymore today, um, but the prophets of old, in the Bible, God's prophets used them for seasons. So they, they're not speaking to him. And then, um, so then in verse 8, it says, So Saul disguised himself and put, de- put on other clothes, and he went and two, of, two men with him, and they came to a woman by night, and they said, Please conduct for us a seance for me, and bring up for me the one whom I shall name you. And the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life and cause me to die? And then Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? <laughs> like, she wasn't messing around, right? Like, she, she wanted to do it. You know, it wasn't like they had to twist her arm very hard. She's just like, hey, I can't do this. You guys know that Saul will kill me if, if I get caught. And they're like, oh, nothing's going to happen. Okay, okay, who do you want me to bring up for you? You know, she was ready to go. <clears throat> so, and then, um, please conduct the sense. And, and then verse 9 says, the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul's done. And Saul swore. Okay, verse 12. Verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, now it just jumps right into it because she saw Samuel. So she's conducting the seance and she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me for you are Saul? So she perceived that this was Samuel and this was Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was, that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. And now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by the prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And then Samuel said, so here's where it gets interesting. As far as what's exactly going on here and and what happened, to be honest, I'm not really sure. I guess we'll just take it at face value. That whether God allowed it or whether, you know, and like I said, there is a certain power in the demonic realm. Now, Saul, Samuel would have been at this point, where would Samuel be? Samuel died in the last chapter. So when the woman is looking for Samuel, technically, like, in, he's where? He's, he's in heaven, but he's not in heaven, heaven, because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. So Samuel is in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is where everybody went. Half of it was heaven, half, half of it was paradise, half of it was um, torment and hell. The half of it that's hell still remains until eternal hell, where people go temporarily. And, and so in, in Samuel is there, and this woman sees him. Now, whether she's making this stuff up, whether, you know, whether she has the power. Now, the way that a lot of the old, like, you know, oldest trick in the book for the spiritists and the mediums is that they do divine a certain power. And like I said, there's a certain power that's involved, but that power is very limited. And usually it's, 
you know, um, what they do is, is they do receive some kind of wisdom, some kind of revelation that's demonic. But the way it comes is you'll come to have your future told and, and they'll do something and something will be revealed to them and they'll say something like, you know, 10 years ago, you were on a beach with a friend and your friend said such and such to you or this happened or a, a body washed up on shore and it was traumatic. And you're like, Nobody knows that but me and that person on a remote beach somewhere. How could you know that fact? Like, I never told anybody ever that. And it's something that, that they can tell about your past or they can predict about your past that will astonish you or shock you. And then, once they got you in that point, now they can make something up about your future because the demons can't tell the future. Satan doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. God knows, but Satan's power does not go but go to tomorrow it can can go back he, he can demonically look at a point in your life and and bring wisdom to a medium or a spiritist who's divining these spirits and and they can come up with some information about something in your past that's accurate and once they do that 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 that, that tells you oh they're powerful they know something and then they can tell you anything about your future and they're very good at making something up it's kind of like a fortune cookie that applies to anybody you know like you can open any fortune in the box and everybody finds some meaning in that fortune and then they make something up about whether it's true or not and who knows maybe they guess about you know you're pregnant i'm seeing you're going to have a girl you know like well there's a chance you'll be right doesn't mean you predicted the future but you know it's it's like so that that's so here we have this again, and to me it's kind of like a hard story to understand in the Bible what actually happened here. I don't know, I, I don't know that you know maybe I don't know maybe in a weird way God allowed this or or the woman did have a vision from Samuel or God gave the woman a vision or something. But it says here in verse sixteen because actually what what Sa- what Samuel says is true. And it says, so why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself, and as he's spoken for by the Lord, has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. And because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistine, and tomorrow you and your son will be with me. So where was he? Abraham's bosom, and by this time tomorrow, Saul and his son would be with him. And does this come true? Absolutely. Saul and his son, Jonathan, are going to die in this battle that's pursuing. So the armies of Israel, the armies of the Philistines are gathering for battle. Saul goes to the Lord. The Lord doesn't answer him. He goes to this woman, asks her to bring up Saul, um, Samuel, and, and she does. And Samuel gives this prophecy, and the prophecy comes true um, that, that he was... Um, going to die the next day. And in, ver- in verse 20, immediately Saul fell on, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadful because, afraid because the words of Samuel and there was no strength in him for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you have spoken to me. Therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go your way. But he refused and he said, I will not eat. And so his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice and he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened to kill it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And so she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and they rose and went away that night. That woman was efficient. You ever go to a restaurant, and they're taking forever, and you're like, what are they doing, killing the cow? Like, she was literally killing the cow. She had a fatted calf. I'm assuming it was still alive. It wasn't butchered yet. And she went and stuck that thing and let it bleed out and cut a steak off inside, and she made some bread, and that very night, she served up a piece for Saul, and so... um, Again, like I said, kind of an anomaly here in the Bible of just this this story, you know, because I, I guess you, you would almost see like, well, did God allow this? Does God, you know, did God allow Saul to bring up Samuel, this woman to bring up Samuel? Is this a real thing? And where everywhere else, you know, it's obvious, it's very clear that God forbids this practice, completely forbids it, you know. And then here, Saul, God allows 
Samuel to speak to Saul what is going to be a very clear prophecy of, of his future and, and, and one that's going to come true. But, you know, unequivocally, I can just say, and I always say in this section of the Bible that, you know, it's, it's, it's forbidden for you and I, for us as believers to mess with any of this stuff. And it makes sense why. It's just a slap in God's face. Like, like why would you not go to God for this information? Who, who's, who loves you? Who's going to give you the truth? Who's going to tell you? And, and what, what is the purpose to go to a, a, a tarot card or a, a Ouija board or some nonsense, you know, some seance that's evil and going to only open up evil in your life when God right here the whole time wants, wants to give you that information? All right, and then in chapter 29 kind of picks up the story of where we left off in, in, in David. Now we're back to David. And the Philistines gathered together and all the armies at, at Aphek and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel, and the Lord of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear of Achish. And the prince of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the prince of the Philistines, the princes, plural, the other four, there would have been five kings of the Philistines, and so um, Achish was one of the five, is this not David, the servant of Saul of Israel, who has been with me these days and these years? And to this day I found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of our men? Is this not the same David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? And then Achish called David and he said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me. In the army is, is good in my sight. For this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming in. Nevertheless, the lords do not find favor for you. Therefore, return now, go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Now, in, you know, Achish and David had a good relationship, but, and Achish is praising David for being honorable and, 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 you know, this good guy in his sight. But is that true? I mean, Achish is fooled, right? Achish is, is he's under the, he, he's under this, David's fooling him as well. David wasn't being upright before him. David was going and killing Canaanites and coming back and telling him he was killing Hebrews. I mean, he wasn't killing Philistines, so I guess in that way he didn't do Achish dirty. He wasn't killing his people. He just wasn't telling them the truth. But David was lying to him the whole time he was under his roof. And David had protection and, 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 you know, from Saul and from the situation with King Achish. But David is just, you know, obviously not in a good place here, and, and he's, he's lying. And now we have even further um, rejection when we get outside the will of God. No mention of David saying, God, should I go down to the Philistine country? Because I, again, and I don't know, I don't know what God would have directed, but I, I get the feeling that that's not what God would have told David to do for this 16 months. He was in a place of depression. He hasn't even prayed to ask God if he's supposed to be down there. Now he's right on the edge of going to war against the Hebrews. And now we can only imagine what would have happened if they would have let him go. You can decide for yourselves. Would he have gone and killed Hebrews and fought alongside the Philistines? Possibly. I kind of think not, but, but who knows? David's in a bad place. But now he's even further for in his own life, in his own walking away from the will of God, he's now being rejected by the world. And so he's out in the world. And so many times as Christians, we don't want to get out there. And we get out in the world and you get out around, you know, outside of God's will for your life and away from God's people. And, you know, you try to fit in somewhere you don't belong. You know, I guess the biggest blessing could be when the world rejects you as well. And so here the world rejects David, but it's got to be a low point for him. He's got to be bummed out. He can't even fit in with the world. They're rejecting him. And then um, in verse 8, it says, So David said to Achish, but what have I done? He's not going to get it go, you know. What have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord my king? So it's like, I, I guess David's just putting on the dog here. You know, at this point, he, 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 sh- he would have, without a doubt, felt relief that he wouldn't be put in this position to have to go and fight against the Hebrews. 
against his own people, against Judah and against Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan was his best friend in the whole world. We know that. Him and Jonathan were loved each other, you know, like brothers. The Bible says that there's not a closer bond between two brothers and, you know, between David and Jonathan. And he doesn't want to have to go fight those guys. And so he, he's obviously just kind of, you know, putting on the dog a little bit. I'm sure he had to be relieved that he was out of that weird position. And then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Oh, my. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise in the morning with your masters, your servants who have come with you. As soon as you are up early in the morning and light and depart. And so David and his men rose and departed in the morning and returned to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And now it happened... As David, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now, every time we see the, the, the name Amalekites here in the Bible, you know, we, we know this is post-Saul being ordered to, to utterly destroy the Amalekites. God, God called for genocide among the Amalekites when, when Saul went to, to battle with them, and when he got back, Samuel showed up, and King Agag was there, and Saul said, you know, what, what are you doing, Samuel? And he said, well, I'm not doing nothing. I did what the Lord said. And he said, no, you haven't. How come I hear the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? He said, oh, we saved a few sheep and a couple of the, the best things for, to sacrifice to the Lord. And King Agag back. Well, obviously, um, Sam, uh, Saul lied, and he didn't thoroughly do what he was supposed to do. And Sa- Samuel takes his sword, and he kills King Agag right there. It says he hacked him up. He gagged him up or gagged King Agag, you know, and, um, but, but somehow in all of that, you know, and even the, 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 the message that Samuel gave him and the message that, that came was that part of the reason why God took the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David was because he didn't, he wasn't obedient in God's decision to take the Amalekites. And so we see this plague of the Amalekites over and over again, and, and you know, none of this should be. And the poetic justice, whether it's justice or not, when, when, when uh, Jonathan and Saul die in the next chapter, it's at the hand of an Amalekite. And so, so David gets back in verse 2. It says, and he had taken captive the women, those who were, who were there from, great, from small to great, and they did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. And David and the men... David and the people, the men who were with him, lifted up their voice and wept, and they had no more power to weep. Now, I want to tell you something. God can't exaggerate. The Bible doesn't exaggerate. And it says that these mighty men of war, they lifted up their voice and they wept until they had no more power to weep. And if you've ever experienced that kind of mourning, you know, where something cuts so deep and hurts so deep, and you can only imagine, the Amalekites were, were, were an ancient enemy. They were a brutal enemy. They were a, a pagan people that were godless and, 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 and just disgusting and, and brutal and evil. And, um, you know, and there was a good reason why, why they were a cancer and they were, they were supposed to be um, taken care of. And so they come back. They've been in a bad place for 16 months and finally it hits rock bottom. You know, these men, the, these 600 men of David, you know, we talked about Leonidas as 300 to try to put it in perspective. If you're familiar with that story. But, but these, are, these are men's men who are, are warriors and accomplished. And the Bible tells us in, in, you know, we've gone through it. I think we studied this before. We studied this on a Sunday a couple months ago. And we looked at the, the men that are in this group. One of them, the son of Dodo, was a man who, who, who the, 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 the nation of Israel was fighting. And the men were scared and began to flee. And this one guy stayed. And it says that he killed in that one battle 800 Philistines until his hand would not rem- couldn't, he couldn't get his hand off his sword. He fought so valiantly and for so long and by himself killed 800 in the battle to the point where his hand was stuck on his sword and on and on and on these stories. And so these men, these mighty men, they're weeping until they have nothing left to weep. Their, their wives are gone. Everything, their villages are burned. They're broken. They're, they're really, really at a low point in life. And it says they lift up their voices and they weep until they can weep no more. And then it says, and David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, and the Carmelitess. And we know something about Abigail. The Bible says that she was beautiful to behold. 
History tells us that Abigail, there was tradition that Abigail was one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. And that widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had taken captive. And David was greatly distressed. Now again, the Bible's not exaggerating. But the other time you see this term greatly distressed is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating great drops of blood. And so David is greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. And so the condition is, um, is grave. The men have had enough to the point where they turn on King David for the first time. These are, these are men that are loyal to the king. These are men that love David so much that every one of them on occasion, on the drop of a hat, do whatever he tells them to do, go to any battle, fight anywhere. And he, when he makes the, the call that we're going to go into a battle or fight, these men get in, they load up and, and they follow him into battle and they give their lives. They're, they're there and they're trying to take Jerusalem at a point and two of these men. David says, oh, how I would long for a, a drink of water from the well. And, and, and David's men sneak through the tunnels and fight into the city just to bring him a cup of water. And they come back and they present to him with, with blood and their lives being risked to bring him just on a whim because he said, oh, how I would, my soul would long for a drink of water from the well. And then these men go and they get it and they risk their lives to get it. And they bring it back to King David and they give him this drink of water. And David, in the story, in the, you know, and he doesn't drink it. He poured it out and he said, I can't drink this. You risked your lives for this. But these are the same men who would risk their lives to go get David a, a cup of water that were loyal to him, that loved him. And they were so hurt, they were so broken that they're ready to kill him. They're mad. They're really mad. And, and finally now, David has done it. They, they, they followed him far enough. And, and they're ready to kill him. And they have their stones in their hands. And, and David, the Bible says, is greatly distressed. And again, that's, that's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood. And so, so Jesus, David in this, this condition has um, nowhere to go. You know, and in this point in his life, um, it's not like, you know, for me, you know, I always have final straw. You know, I, I can always go to my wife. She's always that final line of defense and oftentimes first line, but, but without a doubt, you know, my wife can encourage me in a low, low point, in a time of discouragement, a time of struggle. You know, my wife is there. So David here, you know, all he has to do, right, is just go to his wife, wives, and, and get encouragement from them, right? No. They're not there. They're gone. He can't go to his wives. He, he can't go to his men, he can't go anywhere. He's, he's completely 100% all alone in the situation. He has nowhere to go. You know, if, you, if we backed up uh, a couple chapters, there's a, um, you could just stay where you are. I'll just read it. But it says in uh, 1 Samuel 23, it says, Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose, and he went to David in the woods, and he strengthened his hand in God. So in, in, in you know, another season, in chapter 23, David is going through something, and God calls his brother, this, this close brother that David has, Jonathan, to go and strengthen him in the Lord. And so Jonathan comes, and he encourages him, and he gives him, you know, he prays for him, and, you know, gives him a good word, and tells him, you know, I'll be there for you, and things are going to be okay, and works it out, and really helps David be encouraged in the Lord. And there's a season, like I said, for each one of us, that that's a call, that Jonathan call to go to a brother, a sister in need, and, and strengthen them in the Lord. And for you to have somebody to come into your life when you need it and someone that can strengthen you in a time of, of, of distress and of struggle. But in, in Samuel 30, where we are in this, in this moment, this is a very unique moment because David has absolutely nobody. But we learn one of the, to me, the most powerful lessons in all the Bible of, of walking with the Lord right here. Because, because there's, there's a gift, there's a skill, there's something that happens right in this chapter, in this next part of verse 6, that, that teaches us a skill or a gift that if you'll learn that and have that ability, it will absolutely change your Christian walk. You'll absolutely have no more excuses. And, and it says, what does the very next part of chapter 6 say? But... David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord. It's such a powerful, powerful um, gift and skill. And, and David gets to this point. Now listen for you and I. There definitely comes a time where, you know, things are hard and bad. And, and, and you need people. And other Christians should come in your life and, and encourage you. And people should be there. 
But that's not always the case. But God doesn't leave you with excuse that, oh, well, everybody abandoned me and I'm just going to, whatever, I'm just going to blow up Facebook about how bad everybody is for the next, like, 45 days, you know, like how, how terrible my life is and, you know, and feel sorry for myself and just struggle and I'm just going to go, I don't know, kick dirt on my own shoe or something, you know, like, and we, we, we whine and we complain and we get down and feel sorry for ourselves. And, and it says David was, now the Bible's not exaggerating, greatly distressed. Like he was in a way worse position than you've ever experienced. I promise you that. Like this was a really, really, really low, hard, bad time in David's life. It wasn't just what was happening today. It was 16 months of hell that he had been through. 16 months of rejection and of just discouragement and of, of and, and finally, the, the, the things in his life that, that he had the most love and, and, and the only thing left, his wives who would bring him comfort, his kids, his, his men who loved him, everything was gone now. And so what does David do? He's got two options here. And just throw in the towel, just tell his men, yeah, you should probably stone me. But it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. You know what I like or don't like? I don't know which I should think about it, but the Bible doesn't tell us how. David strengthened himself in the Lord here. I think it's a good thing. I mean, I could, I could guess, you know, if it was me, what do I do? What do we do when we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord? I know that I go to the word of God and the word of God strengthens me. The word of God brings God's truth. I read the Bible. I look for God's word. I look for God to speak to me through the words of the Bible. I know I go to worship. I use music. I know I need to pray. I need to connect with the Lord. I need to give. I need to, to give of myself. I need to, you know, these things that we need to do to connect with God. And so that, that strength can come from the Spirit so that you can hear His voice. And, and you've got to open the Word of God. You've got to read it. You've got you to you know, turn on the worship music. You've got to pray. And those are the simple ones. But, you know, I think sometimes you guys get tired of hearing me say it like it's cliche or like it's, oh, it's just the broad brush that you paint with. But it's not. It's the absolute valuable truth of life. You pray. You read the Bible. You worship God through music and song. You give of yourself. You give of your time. You give of your money. You get your eyes off yourself. You, you do something nice for somebody else. You serve somebody else. You bless somebody else, you know, and, and get your eyes off yourself and strengthen yourself in the Lord. But, and, and again, I don't want to make excuses for us not to be a people that love and encourage and strengthen other people. But I do want us also to be a mature enough people that we can take this lesson from the life of King David and we can apply it to our own lives. Can you imagine, like, what, what, could, what could affect your life? What could rock your life if, if you had this ability to strengthen yourself in the Lord? The answer? Not a cotton-picking thing. <laughs> nothing, right? I mean, nothing could, and how cool would that be? How cool would that be to just let nothing get to you? That, and not to say we wouldn't be bothered, not to say we wouldn't go through depression or struggle or hurt, or, but, but we have an ability to really go to the one that loves us and really plug into him, Re- really, really connect with the heart of God and let God a- and open our, our hearts and our minds to hear God say what's true. And what's true? I love you. It's going to be okay. I got this. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to meet these needs. I haven't left you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, walk in this direction. Do this thing. You know, one of the, one of the, the hard parts about about life is just this, you guys. Listen, we, we put so much kind of um, decision about who God is based on how other people live their lives. Somebody who's a pastor falls into a, a, a sexual sin, an immoral sin. He, you know, runs off with a church secretary in the bank account. The, somebody who says they're a believer, you know, cheats on their taxes and you watch them and they're just dishonorable in business. And you, this guy calls himself a Christian and, you know, or these things. And people in your life, they do things to hurt you. They do things that, that disappoint you. They do things to give God a bad name. And you think... You know, like, and we, we oftentimes we use that as an excuse to not walk with the Lord or to say, you know, that the Bible's not true or God's not true or Christianity's not true. And, and you know, it's such a mistake because we, we have our eyes obviously on the wrong people. People are going to hurt you. People are going to do dumb things. People are going to say dumb things. But when you stand before God one day and you give account to your life, you're not going to be able to say, oh, well, well, the pastor fell in sin, so I just stopped going to church. 
Jesus is going to say, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. You should have never went back to church, man. My word wasn't true. I didn't love you anymore. Like, I didn't want to be with you. I didn't want to, you know, like, all the things of life that we use for an excuse, they're not going to stand before God one day when you, when you present your life to Jesus. The day that you see true love for the first time, when you see the eyes of Jesus, no, nobody that's hurt you, nobody that's wronged you, nobody that's been a hypocrite, that destroyed things in your life is going to be standing next to you. You know the greatest fall in human history, the greatest sin or fall of, of a Christian in human history. I'm going to take a wild crack at it. Closest person to Jesus that should have been the, the most believing, knowing, and, and somebody that Jesus personally trained who committed the most egregious sin the world has ever seen. Who is that person? Judas Iscariot. Personally trained and loved by Jesus for three years. Like this dude was discipled seven days a week, 365 days a year for three years personally by God in the flesh. And his life never changed. And he committed the worst sin that the world has ever seen. When Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, how many of the disciples said, oh, this Christianity stuff's for the birds. Look at this. This pastor, this leader, he just, he just sinned. He's terrible. He, he was supposed to be a Christian and he did that. How many of the 11 disciples walked away from following Jesus when Judas Iscariot sinned? Not a one of them. Why? Because they didn't have their eyes on Judas. They had their eyes on Jesus. Had their eyes on the truth. And if, and if people in our lives, if people in your lives, if the leaders in your life, listen, you know, if, if they do something, just, just first of all, know this. Just prepare yourself. They're going to do something that's wrong. They're going to do something that hurts you. They're going to do something that doesn't make sense. But if that rocks you, then there's a, there's a problem with your maturity and your walk, or, or ultimately there's a problem with where your eyes are. Your eyes are on the wrong thing. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And then, and then you, you have the ability to strengthen yourself in the Lord, and what's true is true regardless of what people around you do. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you keep your eyes on Jesus, and you'll see the best in people and not the worst. And when they fall or something happens, it won't rock you so hard, and you'll just love them anyways. You just wish the best for them and just want to be there for them and help them pick them back up and just love them in Jesus because you know it's all real and true, and instead of just being mad and hurt and you know, deciding how you're going to stop doing this or that because somebody around you hurt you. You know, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? So David strengthened himself in the Lord. Um, all right. We're, um, yeah, we're done. It's 830. Um, that's okay. That, that was that chapter. I'll just tell you. You guys can read the rest of it at home. Actually, you can read 31. Um, I'll, I'll go through it. I think we're going to try to start fresh still. I was going to try to get through it tonight, but I think we're still going to start fresh in 2 Samuel next week. Um, but basically, they, they, um, they go, and, and here, let's read verse 18 of chapter 20, of 30, because this is important. It says, So David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. The men got back everything. None of the kids died. None of the possessions. They got all the possessions, and then some. Um, so the, the, um, David gets it back. The Lord returns, the, restores the years the locusts have eaten. A great victory. Chapter 31, Samuel, or not Samuel, uh, not Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan are in battle. And, and they both die in battle um, at the hand of an Amalekite. And so then in chapter uh, 2 Samuel, we'll pick up next week. We'll get to start the life of study of David as thou the king of Israel. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. My brother's going to be here next week, next Wednesday night. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do yet. I talked to him. I thought he would preach for me next Wednesday night. I think I announced that on Sunday. And I talked to him today, and he said he don't know. He's, he's got some stuff, and he's preaching this Sunday, and then he's coming to work. And so he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll do like a something else. But So I don't know what we'll do next Wednesday if talk to my brother, maybe him and I will do like a something together, Q&A or something, or just try to do something together. If not, we'll just do, we'll start Second Samuel chapter 1 next week, okay? All right, let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Father, we thank you for King David. We thank you for um, just this valuable lesson in First Samuel chapter 30, God, that David at, a, at the low point in his life, he, he had this amazing, God, ability, Lord, e- even in a point where he just 
just had struggled for 16 months in his walk, that he, that he could strengthen himself in the Lord. We thank you, Father, for that ability. We thank you that David just didn't have his eyes, and he had to at some point get his eyes off his wives, off his circumstance, off his men, and keep his eyes on, on, on you, God. And that he kept his eyes on Jesus, and Lord, through that, you strengthened him. He found the strength to lead these men, to go and, and, and inspire these men to go and, and fight for what was theirs and take back from the devil, take back from the Amalekites, their kids and their wives. And Lord, as these men mounted up again and went to battle, and only 400 of them could actually go, 200 of them were just too weak and distraught to, to make the journey. And Lord, these 400 men went and they, they got back everything. And Lord, you kept them all safe. We thank you, Lord, that you restored to them, Lord, all the years the locusts have eaten. And Father, we, we just pray, Lord, I pray for each one in here today, God. I pray, Lord, for any of us who, who've been hurt, Lord, maybe by a, a, a church or a pastor or a denomination. And Lord, something that was done in your name that had nothing to do with you, that wasn't true, that, that, that doesn't represent you or your love. And we've been hurt by it. We've been affected by it. And we've put up a guard, Lord, against you because of what people have done. I pray, God, that, that you would just uh, take that out of our lives, Lord. That, Jesus, we'd get our eyes off of people and onto you. And, Lord, that we would trust you and love you. And, Lord, that we would know ultimately that one day we're going to stand face-to-face with Jesus. And, and in that moment, Lord, none of that stuff is going to matter. Lord, only what's true. Lord, help us to be a people of the word. Help us to be a people who pray. Lord, help us to be a people, God, who connect and engage with you personally and intimately in our daily lives. And, Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys. We'll see you Sunday.